I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. I don't think I've talked about it in this group. There's a practice called Taking in the Good. Is anybody familiar with that? Have we talked about that? The notion here is that we are neurologically hardwired to take in the bad. That Evolutionarily, if that's such a word, back in the times when our ancestors were on the savannah, one bad experience being eaten by a lion could ruin your whole day, right? So people were very focused on avoiding the bad. Nowadays, we're not worried about lions on the savannah, but there's a lot of small stressors. And yet we're hardwired to really pay attention to the negative. So that the, 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 the cute metaphor here is that our neurology is like Velcro to the negative and Teflon to the positive. Does everybody know what Velcro and Teflon are? Are those words you have in Italy and Australian places, everybody? Okay. So that suppose you've had 10,000 experiences with a dog, with, with, with dogs. 9,999 of them were positive, and once a dog bit you. You're going to remember that one experience. That's going to be the one that stands out. Or you go on a vacation, you have a lovely time, 
but you lose your wallet and it's a real pain in the butt. You're gonna, you come home and people say, well, how was your vacation? It was pretty good, but I lost my wallet, right? I mean, that's the one that sticks out. And what they have found though, these scientists, particularly at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, is that if we're having a positive experience, and I'll get into what that means a bit more in just a minute. If we're having a positive experience and we intensify it and extend it for 15 seconds, it goes into the permanent part of the neurology. It doesn't Teflon through. And it begins to bring the scales back into balance with all of the negative things we've been grabbing onto. So in Buddhism, there is something called the four foundations of mindfulness. They're the four categories of things that you can pay attention to. There's only four things you can pay attention to. Okay. The first one is your body. You can pay attention to your body. That's pretty clear. You're breathing, you're moving, pressure of your clothing on your body, pay attention to your body. Second foundation of mindfulness is you can pay attention to your mind. No big surprise there, right? Your thoughts, emotions coming and going through your mind. The fourth one, we're skipping the third one because that's the one we're going to talk about. The fourth one is called mindfulness of the Dharma. Quite subtle. Uh, We don't notice it too much in daily activity. It's more noticed during deep meditation. But mindfulness of the Dharma means you can actually be aware of the characteristics of existence, which are everything is impermanent. In other words, you can be aware of impermanence itself, not what is changing, but you can be aware of change itself. The second one is no self, anatta. Uh, Impermanence is anicca, anatta, no self. You can be aware of not the content of your experience, but there's nobody experiencing it. It's just consciousness meeting experience. You can be aware of lack of a permanent ongoing separate self. And the third thing you can be aware of is the arising of suffering, which once again, it's not I'm suffering because I have cancer or because my toe hurts or because I'm crazy, but you're just, you're aware of the suffering itself. That's mindfulness of the Dharma. But the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. And feelings, not in some colloquial sense of I'm I'm having a good feeling now, or I mean, it's kind of like that, but it's not like emotion. It's associated with the content of each arising is a positive, neutral, or negative feeling, a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And you can be aware of this changing flow of feelings that are going from positive to neutral to negative in an ongoing way, rather than being fixated on what you're feeling positive, neutral, or negative about, right? So what we're saying here is when you're having a positive feeling, you can emphasize it, you can extend it for 15 seconds. When I talk about this in my other groups, people in a very lovely way talk about things they feel positive about. There's one woman who's, uh, she, she teaches how to ride a bicycle to adults who've never learned how to ride a bike. And she's a big bicycle person. She's on the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition Board of Directors or something like that. And what, what she talks about is I'm driving, I'm on my bike, I'm going down a hill, the wind is in my face, my muscles are really happy doing the thing. And I just take that feeling and I extend it and it begins to change me. 
And that's wonderful. But what I'm saying, it can be much more subtle than that. We don't have to wait for the perfect piece of music or the perfect bike riding experience or looking into the eyes of the beloved. But there are more subtle senses of a positive feeling that are happening again and again and again that we often let just slide Teflon themselves right through without really paying attention to them. I mean, like right now, we're together. It's a small group. We're all around the planet. East Coast, West Coast, Montana, Italy, Australia. It's like everywhere. And here we are. We're having this fun together. There's some kind of pleasant feeling about that, at least for me, some of the time, most of the time. Can you tune into that? Can you let that be there? And that begins to create new neural pathways. Now, imagine, I mean, here's John, for instance. He couldn't come last week, last month, because he was in a lot of pain. But I would guess, John, that even with all the pain and the broken hand or wrist or whatever it was, that there were still a lot of positive things in your life that you could tune into to begin to balance the physical discomfort of of the, the broken bone or bones, whatever it is. There is always the possibility of that kind of practice. Now, admittedly, this is a dualistic practice. There is a me looking for the positive because I've grabbed onto too many negatives But what I'm saying is that as we do that more and more, it begins to feed the heart. In a way, saying mantra is a practice that is even, in a way, founded or based upon this notion that if we keep thinking about God, then we become God. We realize we are God. In fact, I think the Buddha said, you are what you think. And if we're thinking all the time, oh, my God, Donald Trump, oh, my God, climate change, oh, my God, you know, all that stuff is happening. It's always going to happen. There's always going to be ignorance and aggression in the world. That's the human condition. We can focus on that, and it's there. But can we also be opening to the fact that there is this, there is a joy that transcends happiness and sadness, wellness and illness? There's, there's like a, a positive feeling that can always be there when we begin to go beyond attachment. I remember once uh, I was in India uh, at my guru's temple, and he was not available for a while. A bunch of us were talking, and there was an old Indian devotee of his who came and heard what we were saying, and he said, you Westerners don't understand. You think that Maharaji is only the good things. He is all of it. When you're having a hard time, that is also his grace. <laughs> and Ramdas had this saying that I I resisted for probably 10 years because I just hated it so much. But I'm beginning to agree. A long time ago, I began to agree. Suffering is grace. Suffering is grace. Not only these blessings that shower upon us are grace, but that even the suffering is a blessing, even the suffering is grace, not just the obvious blessings. I mean, that's even going back to that conversation about being at somebody's bedside to the extent that people are holding on to the dying person. In a way, they're projecting their own fear of dying. And outwardly, it might look like they're being really loving. But if the motivation has to do with clinging, there's suffering in them at the time. If the motivation is just love, then Love interferes with nothing. I can't emphasize enough 
how often forgiveness and particularly self-forgiveness is an important practice for people on their deathbeds. That very often what prevents somebody from surrendering into the spiritual opportunity that the dying process uncovers or presents is the fact that people feel guilty. I wasn't a good enough son. I wasn't a good enough father. I, I didn't love enough. I was too busy with my career, whatever it is like that. There are three kinds of forgiveness. There's asking forgiveness from somebody else. Number one. Number two is forgiving somebody else. And three is forgiving yourself. So in Buddhism, they have these slogans, which I never use, but it's nice to know them just to understand the breadth and the depth of what it is that we're talking about. So suppose that you feel that you have wronged somebody and you'd like to ask for forgiveness. The, The slogan goes, please forgive me for anything that I might have said, done, or thought intentionally or unintentionally that has caused you to suffer. Or you could say, I forgive you for anything that you have thought, said, or done intentionally or unintentionally that has caused me to suffer. Or you can just go around saying to yourself, Dale, I forgive you. Dale, I forgive you. If we look at our healing paradigm, it's almost like saying a mantra. From the, from the standpoint of the invocation stage, you're not really feeling it yet. You're not feeling forgiven. But you know that forgiveness exists. It's a theoretical thing. It's happened in the past. There is maybe even a God that forgives. And yet, so you're invoking, you're reaching out. You're trying to find that quality of forgiveness in yourself. You're imagining what it might feel like if it were real. And as this process deepens, as the mantra deepens, as the forgiveness practice deepens, we get to the heart stage where there's actually a loving relationship with the object of the mantra. You're saying God's name, you're in love with God, or you're, you're wanting to forgive yourself and you're beginning to soften. You're beginning to feel that loving, forgiving relationship with that part of yourself that you think needs to be forgiven. And as that deepens even further into the tantric stage, you begin to realize that you are the object of the mantra, the subject of the mantra, or you're doing forgiveness practice, you realize that even those things that you're you're needing to forgive yourself for were all a perfect part of your healing path. They're what brought you to this moment. They, they are what has inspired you to open to yourself in the way that you are doing right now. There was It was not a mistake. It was just another possibly difficult form of the mother who was bringing you love. For clients, you could even ask them, is there, is there some part of yourself or is there somebody else that you need to ask forgiveness from? Can you forgive yourself for the way you've been a perfectly imperfect human being? Can you forgive the people in your life who haven't been there in the way that you might have hoped for moment to moment to moment? Or can you ask forgiveness from those people that 
you feel that you might not have been there as fully as you would have liked. There's this thing called the materialistic worldview that Western society and particularly Western medicine is based on. And the materialistic worldview is that there's an objective, separable reality out there that we are perceiving through our senses. And that if you and I were both to look at this cup that I'm holding up in front of the camera, we'd see the same thing. The blue cup, but how do I know what you think is blue? There's no way to know, right? But quantum mechanics has proven, proven that the materialistic worldview is not true. There cannot be a reality that is both objective and separable. Objective means it's out there, we're perceiving it. Separable means that if I ring this bell, there's something in Australia or Italy that is not affected by me ringing the bell. It's separate. But ancient tantric wisdom, both Buddhist and, and Shaivite Hinduism, and modern quantum mechanics say, no, that's backwards. That basically, there's one consciousness that flows through our individual human filters that is creating reality. It's not that it's coming in, it's being created. And it, it's, all, it's, all, it's all consciousness. It's not this objective reality out there. It's just all consciousness. That might sound really theoretical, but if occasionally you surrender into what it might feel like to be creating reality rather than there's this impinging solid thing out there that can be very problematic, it, be, it begins to change our relationship with our experience we don't have to take out there so personally, so threatening, so difficult. It's just, it's just all consciousness. And that is how great saints who are living in that reality can know the past and the future and can move around and be in two places and that kind of stuff, because it's just all consciousness. To know the past or the future seems impossible from the materialistic worldview. Near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences, there's a, a book called Proof of Heaven that I'm not suggesting anybody goes out and buys, but it's by a, you know, by a neurologist called Eben Alexander. He got a very wicked form of meningitis that almost killed him. They put him in a medically induced coma for about a week or something. And during this time, they, he, he was hooked up to all these monitors, EEG machines or whatever, and he had completely flatlined. They were sure he was going to die. He had no brain activity. And during this time, he had a near-death experience. He had mind activity. He had conscious activity, although there was no brain activity. And he went to heaven. And unfortunately, he seemed to feel that heaven is a place of a lot of pink clouds and other fluffy things, actually. <laughs> but, but be that as it may, he was having an experience that was not based in the objective brain. And there's all kinds of people having near-death experiences that, that they're able to know things and see things that were they identified with their body and personality, they could not see or know. Somebody who's been blind all of their life has a near-death experience. They can see what color 
tie the doctor has on or, you know, whatever color, you know, something. They can see things. Or they can see things that are going on in another part of the hospital from where their body is that turn out to be true. I've been around people who are at the end of their life. Maybe they're becoming demented. Maybe they're comatose for a while. And from the standpoint of the family, that can be expensive. It can be very upsetting. It can be a big problem. But from the standpoint of consciousness, it's helping that person let go of, I'm me, I'm in control, I'm in charge. It's helping them learn to be quiet, to receive, to let go of control, to let go of the need to understand. So from the standpoint of of evolution of consciousness, it can be a very healing and productive time of life. Very often the relatives say, oh my God, that's, that's not grandma anymore. Let's medicate her up and get her out of here or something like that. I mean, certainly that happens. And I had a client a while back who was the wife of a guy who's now become a very dear friend of mine. She was a, just a wonderful woman. She was so vibrant. Everybody loved her. And they called me in to help the family during the last month of her life or so. And I, I, I came to see her. I'd been there a few days before. I came to see her, and she was just non-responsive. And I said, Mike, what happened? And he said, well, the, the last time hospice was here, they, they, they changed the medication. And I looked at the, ch- at the pills on the bedside. They were giving her Haldol, and they'd really upped the dosage of, of pain medication. And I looked, she was taking three things that were like really heavy duty, and she was just like gone. And I said, you know, I don't, th- I don't think she needs to be taking all that. And he called up the hospice, and they profusely apologized. And they took her off two of the medications and dropped the dosage on the third one. And a day later, she came back, and the last week of her life, was beautiful. She was interacting with the children and with her family and everything was great. But the hospice nurse projected her own fear of dying, thinking, if it were me, I wouldn't want to be here for that experience. So let's give this person all these drugs so that she's not here at the end of her life. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not here to say bad things about hospice. That's just one person, right? There are many profoundly wonderful people doing hospice work. But the question then is, what is the motivation? Do you want to not suffer? Do you want to not have any problems? Or do you want to wake up? Do you want to deepen your ability to love? And once again, then, we go back to motivation. What's the most important thing? And those are good questions to ask before we get the diagnosis. Can I be mindful of what it feels like to be lost in my life? The Buddha said... There are two kinds of suffering, which is based on the two fundamental kinds of ego structure. There's personality-based suffering that is the result of your conditioning, your childhood, you're getting angry at people, you, you go to a psychotherapist to help deal with these places where you suffer psychologically. But the other level of ego, the other level of suffering is the part of ego that believes that you are a separate self. And there is a more subtle sense of suffering when one then believes in this solid you who exists. And it's certainly possible to be somebody 
who does a lot of psychotherapeutic work. You deal with a lot of the personality-based suffering, and you're really pretty unneurotic, but you still have that subtle suffering that you're really caught in thinking you're a solid, separate being. And on the other hand, there's people that do a lot of meditation. They realize there's nobody solid and separate. They're, they can float in spaciousness, but they're still neurotic and they suffer a lot because they haven't done the psychological work, right? The, the somatic psychological work. So for many of us, it really is very useful to have both of those healing paths uh, being something that we're working with in a, in a daily moment-to-moment way. So this is a really good session today. I'm enjoying it. I hope you are. I've got a client who I talk to on the phone every other week. And we he's in Atlanta. We were talking a few days ago. And he said, how have you been? We were just chatting in the beginning. I said, you know, I had a really bad cold, one of the worst colds of my life. I, I had a lot of coughing and mucus, and it was really unpleasant. He said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I said, no, no, I love being sick. And he was shocked. <laughs> and I said, no, no, when I get sick like that, it keeps reminding me that I, I I'm not who I keep assuming that I am. I mean, I can't breathe in the same way. I can't sleep in the same way. This body seems like somebody else's body. It reminds me that it's just the body. And it's like going to a foreign land. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's unpleasant, but it's very awakening. And if, if I want to, if I want to wake up, then being sick is is can be incredibly useful. If I want to not suffer, if I want to be happy all the time, getting sick is really a drag. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Certainly, when difficult things happen, there will be moments of frustration and anger. But to me, the, the, the spiritual work is to not leave a residue. In other words, you feel anger, but you don't hold on to it. You don't keep staying in the story if only they would have put a sign out or whatever. You just you feel the anger and you just let it go and it's on to the next moment. There's a wonderful story about Sri Aurobindo. He said, I was walking down the, the, the path and God knocked me over. I fell in a mud puddle. I got all muddy. I stood up. I shook my fist at God and said, why are you doing this to me? Look at I'm all dirty now. How can you do this to me? And I continued down the path and I walked a bit further and he knocked me over again and I fell in another mud puddle and I got up. I didn't shake my fist at God. I just was kind of upset and and said, come on, do you have to do this? And then I went further down the road and he knocked me over again and I just got up and kept walking. So that one of the tricks is how quickly can we get back to being on the horse of practice? How quickly can we come back to being present? Stuff will happen. That's the human experience. We cannot control away all of the difficulty. Everybody dies. Ramana Maharshi, Ramakrishna died of cancer. Not because they had a cancer-prone personality structure, but because they had a body. They had to die some way or another. We have bodies. We have personalities. We have friends who are imperfect human beings, finite human beings, and we're bumping into this stuff all the time. Certainly, there are people that choose to limit their lives. People choose to go into a monastery and be silent or to fast or to limit sexual expression or all all kinds of different things. There are stories about my guru who uh, apparently he spent 
a year standing in a lake. And one day you will lose your body and your personality and all your stuff and everybody that's loved you. And it will all go in one breath. So that to the extent that we're practicing as we age, hopefully age, (laughs) so much the better. One can try to understand this. I mean, there's this universe where we have these bodies and seems to be the only planet anybody can find with anybody on it. And the whole thing is such a mystery. And to me, the only, the only sense that I can make out of this is that we're here to awaken. We're here to uh, understand the vastness of who we are. And I would really guess that everybody in this virtual room here together today has had experiences at times where we are so much vaster than that which the mind can understand. The Bible talks about the peace that passes understanding. And yet, again, we come back to the comfortable known of holding on to the known because the surrender into the unknown is so challenging to the ego structure. So I would like to thank all you guys for your commitment to being here, uh, your willingness to work both on yourselves and most of you are healers in one way or the other. And I really keep trying to remember it's an honor and a privilege to be in this relationship with all of you.